Hello, and welcome to the fourth episode of Cypher Vision, Capitalism Without Capital. I'm Nigel Schweitzer, and joined today by our co-host, Frankie Lavoie. Hi, Nigel. How are you today? I'm pretty good. Even better is that we're joined by a celebrity guest, Jonathan Haskell, British economist and professor of economics at Imperial College Business School. He has authored the best-selling book, Capitalism Without Capital, which is where we borrowed the title from, The Rise of the Intangible Economy. Welcome, Jonathan, and congratulations on being reappointed to the Bank of England Monetary Policy Committee. Thank you, Nigel. Thank you, Frankie. Delighted to be here. Thanks a lot for having me on. Well, Jonathan, it's great to have you here. And I guess where we'd like to start is asking you a little bit about your background, if you can explain that to our listeners, and how you got interested in intangible assets. Well, that's kind, Frankie. Thank you. I'm an economist, and being an empirical economist who likes looking at data, I spent the first part of my career listening to endless seminars, which were all about manufacturing, and they're all on manufacturing data. And that, of course, is because that's where lots of the data lies. Our statistical systems that economists use kind of are firmly grounded in the 1940s and the 1950s when national income accounting was invented and the concepts of GDP were invented. And those were predominantly manufacturing economies. And the disconnect was that, of course, most of my friends didn't work in manufacturing. They did these weird services things like IP lawyers or accountants or software. So, When I started to listen to people who were interested in intangible assets, I realized that I think it spoke to a better description of what it was all my friends were doing, and it spoke towards a better description about what the economy of the future was going to look like. And thinking about the economy of the future, I guess we instinctively know that when you're looking at innovation, technology, and data, they seem to be driving value. Is there actually the economic evidence to support that? Yeah, yeah, there is. But the trouble is the economic evidence is very indirect. And it's very indirect because we believe of an incomplete treatment of intangible assets. So what what do I mean by that? If you go, for example, to the national accounts, which is the first place that many economists would go to, that's the internationally agreed way that we count GDP, we measure the economy, that policymakers have sight of what they think is going on. If you go to those national accounts, you see some intangible assets and some measures of innovation, but by no means all of them. So many of the types of measures in the the accounts that people look at would be, for example, R&D. And there's lots of counting of R&D done, lots of statistical agencies spend lots of time trying to count the amount of R&D that firms are doing. Uh, And government ministers, of course, go on and on about R&D or the perceived lack of it in different countries all the time. To your question, Frankie, then when we try to correlate that with growth rates in different countries, we get a rough correlation, not a brilliant correlation, but we get a rough correlation suggesting that there's certainly something going on there. But what I think we don't have is we don't have a fuller picture of the sort of armory of innovative investment, intangible investment that firms are making besides R&D. They're trying to train their workers, lots of other types of innovation, knowledge investment besides the ones that are often counted. And I think, therefore, to your question, the reason that we've got a strong sense that this innovative investment matters for growth is that we've got these correlations, but they're not as sharp as they might be because I think we're not considering the wider range of intangible investments. And if we did do, we'd probably have a fuller picture of the innovation process. 
And thinking about the corporate landscape, when you even look back to 21 years ago to the millennium, I think when we look now at the Fortune 500 companies, half of them have disappeared. The average age of a company on the S&P 500 is less than 20 years old. Mm. Do you think that has to do with the change and the rise of intangibles? And how should we look at a company's assets, tangibles versus intangibles? Yeah, I think it does. I mean, again, economists like me, maybe slightly older economists like me, are brought up on Galbraith. He's possibly, at least for the generation of people in the 50s and 60s and 70s, the sort of best known economist to non-economists. And Galbraith was writing in books like The New Industrial State and the Affluent Society about companies like General Motors, Bethlehem Steel, all of those types of companies who, to your question, Frankie, used to dominate the Fortune 500. And it was only, I don't know, nine years after the publication of The New Industrial State that Microsoft got started. Now, those types of companies dominate the Fortune 500. And the story and the lesson in the new industrial state that Galbraith was writing about was a very heavy, tangible-based type of economy. So US Steel was his typical example. Oil companies were typical example. What kind of assets did they have? They had enormous tangible assets. They would have oil rigs. A company like Microsoft has almost none of those types of tangible assets. I mean, sure, it's got a few buildings and they've got some computers and listeners to this podcast will immediately recognize all of this. What it's got is it's absolutely swimming in intangible assets. And so we think it's that shift from the tangible to the intangible that enables you to better understand how it is that these economies have evolved. How would you explain the difference between the assets of tangible and intangibles? I I know you write about the four S's. I'm just wondering if you could maybe highlight that to our listeners as a way of understanding the difference between, say, a Microsoft and a General Motors, for example. Yeah. So what you might say is you might say, well, this all sounds very well, but hasn't the nature of assets changed a lot over history. If we were having this podcast or whatever the equivalent of the podcast would be in the 1880s, I suppose it would be a discussion at the Albert Hall. We'd be talking about all these brand new canals. And then a while after that, we'd be talking about railroads. And then we'd be talking about airports, all this investment. It just changes all the time. So why are we interested in all this stuff? And the the reason I think that my co-author, Stephen Westlake, and I, motivated to write a, a little book, were interested in all of this, is what we thought was that these intangible assets just had different economic properties to the assets that came before them. And you kindly referred to our 4Ss framework. Those 4Ss describe these different economic properties that we think these intangibles have. Maybe it's best if I just pick a specific example, which is, of course, the best-known British innovation in the entire world, even aliens from other universes have heard of this British innovation. And your listeners will know what it is. It is, of course, Harry Potter. And if you think about what Harry Potter is all about, it displays some of the four S's. So the first S is scale. Once J.K. Rowling wrote the script, you could print that script over and over and over again. So you can scale up these intangible assets. In this case, the intangible asset being the knowledge embodied in the script. So that was the first thing. The second thing is synergies. That's just the second S. The great glory of Harry Potter is the combination of lots of different intangible assets together. So it's the intangible asset of the script, plus the software, which makes all the movies, plus the canny marketing and all of that knowledge as well that sells to people and so forth. That's the synergies. That's the second bit. 
The third S is spillovers, which is once people have had the idea of Harry Potter, then other people can have similar ideas. And of course, lots of the Harry Potter lawyers spend their time trying to prevent other people from picking up on these ideas. Our favorite example is Hari Potter, which is a Indian version of Harry Potter, spelled H-A-R-I Potter, which is a movie in India featuring a wizard. Your listeners will recognize there's some spillovers going on there, which is to say that the ideas in some of these other places have spilled over. And then the fourth S, and I'll finish on this, is sunk costs. Once you've invested in, for example, a marketing campaign for Harry Potter, then you can't get that money back. If you then decide that there is somebody who doesn't like Harry Potter and you're going to withdraw that marketing campaign, that's all spent. So those are quite different economic properties to something like, say, a building, which you could sell. And then if you didn't use it, you could get it back. If you wanted to have more people, you'd have to build another building. And that's why, as I say, we think that this move to intangibles is not just of note to accountants, but because it's got different economic properties, then the economy is going to look rather different as a consequence. We were looking at the evolution of assets and infrastructure over the years. People might go and say that intangible is just another one, but pretty much all of the ones you listed, I could touch, kick or jump into. And intangibles are very different, as the name suggests. They're invisible, at least to the naked eye. And then your book depressed me as well as enlightened me on many levels, but it talked about the history of the law of property and how ownership of property, physical property, was developed 2,000 years ago, with a slight hint that it might take us 2,000 years for the laws and policy around intangibles to catch up. Obviously, some of that's tongue-in-cheek, but do you think there's a real catch-up game in play? I think there is, Nigel. My terrific co-author, Stian Westlake, is a historian. And so he's very both informed and interested in precisely what you just say, which is these social institutions take a long time to evolve. So we open up the book describing the Doomsday Book. And if you go to the Doomsday Book and look up the modern day Stansted Airport, about which there's lots of arguments about who owns Stansted Airport, but that's all fairly well set out owned by the shareholders and particular company and all of that. Whereas if you ask the question, is a Jaffa cake a cake or a biscuit? There's immense amounts of argument about all of that. Is an Uber employee an employee of Uber or are they self-employed? There's lots of argument about that. So those issues when it comes to these more intangible notions in the case of a Jaffa cake, a kind of branding notion. In the case of the Uber employee, the kind of relationship, which is embodied in the employment contract. Those types of institutions, conventions around these intangible relationships, around these intangible assets are much less embodied, I think. And so these things take longer to resolve. And part of the transition to the intangible economy is to resolve those kinds of ownership issues still, I think, a very live question around a lot of these assets. And I'd like to link that to another one of the comments you just made about the financial treatment and mm. where people go to for their data and information. Mm. And for many years, people have gone to the report and accounts of companies. Seems reasonable, certainly exactly. for public companies, that they should go and tell you what they're doing, what they own, and what are the risks and opportunities in that will encourage or discourage investors to deploy their capital. 
But over 90% of respondents, when we did a survey, when we asked them, were investors taking account of intangibles, over 90% of them say they weren't. And there's a, a few obvious reasons for that. And you refer in your book to another book called The End of Accounting by Levin Gu, which is very depressing reading, saying that we're holding on, clinging on to 40-year-old accounting standards. And that means that they're very good at counting physical assets and do a less good job of accounting, communicating, being transparent about intangible assets. Why do you think we're still in this position and what do you think should be done about it? It is a curious position, Nigel, that we find ourselves in. And, and the Levin Goo book, I mean, the message of the book is a depressing message and it is all in the title, as you say, which is the end of accounting. They say that the information in the company accounts in the modern intangible world is just minuscule and it seems to be sort of vanishing all the time. So why we've got ourselves in this position is, I think, a rather curious one. I think there may be some good reasons for why it is that accountants are very reluctant to count some of the intangible assets in a firm, which is that accountants also reluctant to value something which is internally generated. So many firms who've got people working on software, people working, developing designs and all that kind of thing, if it's all done internally, which it often wants to be done because that's the knowledge base which firms don't want to leak out, accountants, again, sort of struggle how to recognize all of that. But Whereas if it's all bought in for a certain amount of dollars and cents or pounds, shillings and pence, accountants know what they're doing. So I think there's a sort of prudence argument. That said against that, however, is that we just know increasingly there's just an enormous gap between what's in the company accounts and the value of the firms. And when I say we know that, it goes back to Frankie's question earlier on. When we try to correlate the GDP of countries with the intangible assets, as I say, which is sort of typically missing, we get those strong correlations. So that's on the very kind of macro scale. But also the work that you're doing at Cypher attempting to better value what it is that companies are doing. I mean, we know there are just enormous gaps there. And as I say, I think the caution of accountants, I'd sort of support that caution, but that is at a very growing and significant cost, namely the sort of massive emerging difference between what they count and what a company's worth. With that reference to Cypher, yeah, one of our missions is to support transparency. Mm. I'd like to go and try and link that mission to one of the comments you just made there, the accounting difference between homegrown assets, let's go on to say a patent, which, as you say, does not appear on the balance sheet. And the companies therefore tend to only report what they're required to report. And therefore, they don't, in the general case, report what their R&D turned into. So they'll say what they spent, but they won't say what they created. And if you compare that to a patent that they buy in, and that obviously has a purchase price attached to it, then that will get a different accounting treatment. To what extent is that just nuts? I mean, that you say that it's prudent, but it just sounds inconsistent. Well, as I say, I think if you ask the accounting community, they'll just say it's all very difficult. It's ascribed by economists. Keynes decided it, it, that he would rather be approximately right than precisely wrong. Which is to say, if we don't count this stuff, or rather, Nigel, as your question just suggested, we have this rather asymmetric treatment, 
we're sort of very precise, but we know that we're wrong <laughs> in our precision. So where on the spectrum does one want to lie between, as I say, being precise, but wrong, but being approximate, but being right? And I guess our feeling, Stephen Westlake and I's feeling, is we'd like to push the accounting and policy community a little further towards the uh, more approximate side of things uh, rather than the precisely wrong side of things. Jonathan, things are hopefully moving forward. You're a member of the Bank of England Monetary Policy Committee and also non-exec director on the UK Statistics Authority. So that hopefully suggests that the voice of intangible assets is being heard and things are changing. Do you see things changing at a national and an international level? I think they are changing. And the voices of Nigel and other people like Tony Clayton, who was chief economist at the Intellectual Property Office, who who a number of people on this podcast might know, those voices are increasingly being heard. And that's very, very helpful. I'd think of it in the following way. Around the community of national accountants, which I know is not a community that many people are that interested in, but they're the ones who compile GDP. When we look at GDP as policymakers or just as concerned citizens, it's through that lens that we make a lot of our decisions and we try to figure out where the economy is going. Amongst the community of national accountants who are designing all of this stuff, they are very plugged into these issues of intangible assets. So they are including software, they are including R&D, they are including artistic originals. And back to the earlier discussion with Nigel, they're not only including the bought-in stuff, but they're also including the internally generated stuff as well. And when I say including, they're counting it as an investment and then running it through the mechanism of GDP, ascribing it a rate of return. So there's a strong movement in the national accounts community, and that's pushed hard the various economists involved there and by policymakers who are interested in this as well. There is somewhat of a movement amongst the company accounting community, but I think that's a little bit more glacial, as we've just been discussing with Nigel, So that has some way to go. But I think part of the message of our book, the work Cypher is doing, these style of podcasts, I hope that's sort of spreading the word somewhat and emphasizing how important all of this is. And I think, although they're little baby steps, are important to a slightly better place. I was just going to pick up on the point that you made there around policymakers, and that's great to hear that they are involved with the national accounts. Do you feel there's more that policymakers should be doing? I think there is because what lots of policymakers are, of course, interested in is not only the conduct of the economy as we see it at the moment, so the emergence, for example, from the pandemic, but they're interested in the future of the economy and what the future economy is going to look like. You might say, well, wait a moment, hasn't COVID changed everything, right? We've had the worst pandemic for hundreds of years, the worst recession, at least in the UK, for 300 years. This intangible stuff, it's all over. That was pre the pandemic. We're now in this different world. And I, I would say, I don't think it's completely the opposite, actually. I think some of the changes that policymakers are very interested in around the pandemic has been around digitalization, your world at patent applications, patent applications involving digital homeworking, all that kind of thing has absolutely shot up. If anything, the whole pandemic is a sort of a kick to the intangible assets program, which policymakers are super interested in. I'll say one other thing, just whilst we're talking about the pandemic, if I may, the very thing which is hopefully going to get us out of this pandemic, namely the vaccine, is itself an incredible intangible asset. That is to say, it's a sort of formula written on a page, as well, of course, as being a manufacturing process. And so if ever we doubted 
how important these intangible assets are, the development of a vaccine strikes me as being an absolutely front and center example about how vital all this stuff is. It's internally generated. Nigel and you, Frankie, would know better than me. It's probably protected by all manner of patents and all that kind of thing. It's got a complicated manufacturing process. There's lots of deep embedded knowledge around all the complications of the manufacturing process. I mean, this is just not US steel putting up a building and adding a bit of iron with a bit of other stuff and making something else. This is a deeply intangible project. So I think the future of the economy, which policymakers, as I say, very excised by, is going to be an intangible one. No, I think it's really interesting, Jonathan, that you're mentioning the vaccine. And when you look at the combination of policymakers and corporates coming together to deliver something so quickly that is intangible. I'm just wanting to pick up on another point that you mentioned previously. National accounting seems to be moving forward. Is corporate accounting moving forward? And thinking of the vaccine as an example, Nigel, I'd like to ask you, what do you think IP teams should be doing if we've got policymakers working hard and we've got national accounts working hard? What can the IP teams within organisations do to help understand the value of intangibles? That's a great question. And the answer is, I think IP professionals have a more important role than they've ever had before. Intellectual property used to be a silo inside organizations, and they used to go and do their job, which was either to litigate or license or file for more patents. But now look at the opportunity which is there. We're saying on some numbers that 80% of the enterprise value of companies is or will be intangible. And it's not being communicated. So one of the things that I'm very fixated about is we shouldn't regard this just to be an accounting problem. And if some of the points Jonathan make are true and the word glacial has any role to play, then I don't think we can wait 40 years for catch up. And therefore, the key word should be transparency. And I'd like to use ESG as an example. ESG now accounts for about 20% of the 46 billion dollars invested in companies in the US. But go back 10 years, ESG wasn't even a thing. And it was only when the money started talking and saying, we will only invest in companies that have strong ESG indicated, the whole new industry came around about measuring it. And that which is measured gets greater prominence. I wonder if Jonathan and all the work that he's doing makes it absolutely clear that intangible asset companies are more likely to perform better, or if the evidence emerges that they do perform better, then all of a sudden we will have this opportunity for companies to promote and be transparent about what their intangible assets are, whether they're homegrown, whether they're bought in, whether they do have some fire sale value, or whether they're core to the business as an ongoing concern. And I think if CEOs and main boards are being asked these questions, please tell us your intangible asset story. I understand from Mr. Haskell and many others that it's critical to both the company, the country, and the world. What have you got to say with it? Wouldn't it be nice to think that just like every single public company today has a sustainability report, not mandated by GAP or by accounting standards, wouldn't it be nice if there was an intangible asset report that sat alongside where companies could communicate more clearly? And if companies are going to communicate more clearly, my strong view, or at least the encouragement I would give the IP community is to help companies be in a position to be ready for that request, or at least 
be ahead of the game and start communicating to the board so that the board can start celebrating those things where the value lies and where the competitive advantage may be gained. Jonathan, I know you've looked into ESG. I I listened to a podcast that you were a guest on the ESG agenda and, and you talked a lot around how you can actually measure ESG. I mean, any comments to Nigel's thoughts around ESG? Yeah, very much support what Nigel was saying. I mean, the way I would cast ESG is one of the intangible assets of firms is their reputation. Perrier know this. If people don't think the water's very nice, <laughs> their Perrier are in some difficulty. So ESG is, I think, a sort of notion that fits nicely into the intangible assets kind of way of thinking about things. The reservations I would have with ESG, and in a sense, this speaks to what Nigel was saying just now and what Cypher is doing, is that at least to me, quite a lot of ESG indices are very obscure. So when a company says it's got various ESG metrics, I never quite know what that is. There are now lots of companies who will measure ESG for you. The correlation between some of those ESG measures is shockingly low, actually, well below 0.5, which leads you to then wonder what's being measured, what it is that these ESG indices are founded upon, and so on. And Nigel, you're talking earlier on about the transparency types of issues. And again, in your business, you know, valuing patents, part of the ESG agenda is going somewhat in a rather different direction, it seems to me. I'm not sure how transparent it is. Now, because I think companies are increasingly signed up to this agenda, hopefully all of that can change. But we've got a little way to go yet, I think, before we can confidently look at a number of these indices and then understand how truly companies' performance is evolving and then try to get a better sense of the information gaps which exist because of the accounting processes and deficiencies that we were talking about earlier on. And of course, ESG is a whole new topic and one we will almost certainly come back to in another episode of Cypher Vision. But I do just want to say one point. ESG is extremely popular. There is no company that isn't thinking about communicating its ESG score. But Not many companies are communicating their intangible score. And to my mind, as we often say in Cypher, it's intangible, not invisible. And something like patent data, which is regulated around the world and is the largest library of scientific information, it's a reasonable thing to do to communicate as fact what you own. And there's a really good NBER paper called Green Patents, which basically say 14% of the companies investing in green technologies, those which are absolutely aligned with the UN sustainability criteria, are excluded from a large number of ESG funds because they happened also to be energy companies. When I talk about transparency, I'm talking about the crossover between a topic which is highly topical and another topic which is struggling for transparency, namely intangibles. And there's a meeting point because there's a lot of hard data relating to intangible assets. I think where that takes you, Nigel, is this. If if a company's built up a patent, be they an energy company or be they whatever type of company, they've probably spent some money. And the trouble with the ESG is that some of the metrics seem to me to be metrics of intent or metrics of attitude, which sometimes is fine. But the hard-nosed 
economist in me says, well, I'd actually quite like to know if a company says they're committed to something or others, some project, let's say green or not, how much money are they spending? That is at least some metric that I can get a hold of. And at least that shows some commitment. So again, I think it goes back to the transparency type of issues. And by asking those hard financial types of questions, one can have then maybe a slightly more insightful conversation and build some slightly more insightful metrics than some of the metrics which are flying around at the moment. Jonathan, that brings us to the end of our time, but I don't want to end the conversation first without thanking you for your time and your insight. And on behalf of the intellectual property community, to thank you for the efforts that you and the teams you work with are doing to promote this agenda to end the conversation, we always like to end with a cipher vision, a key takeaway message. What would that be? Well, first of all, thank you, Nigel, for those kind words. And as I was mentioning, there are lots of people who are working on all of this. And I've had lots of inspiration from you and colleagues in the IP community, and I hope that would continue. Secondly, in terms of the sort of takeaway message, what I would say is that intangibles are the company assets of the future. Thank you very much, Jonathan. The changes we've discussed today have taken place in a generation It's easy to forget Apple was founded in 1976 and Google in 1998. What drives and threatens the value of companies and therefore the economy is now so very different. What's required is for behaviors to change and evolve to keep up with this new reality. This requires better communication and collaboration between those in the intellectual property world and those that run businesses and the economy. We're fortunate to have Jonathan Haskell as a pioneer and advocate. Thank you for tuning into the Cypher Vision podcast series. Please continue the conversation on social using hashtag Cypher Vision and share your thoughts about today's episode on capitalism without capital. Tune in to our next podcast where we'll be speaking to Suzanne Harrison, co-author of Edison in the Boardroom and the sequel Einstein in the Boardroom, when we will be discussing the rise of IP strategy. 